I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge, you know? They're, they're to total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the helm that lie to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right? it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. I never used to question before, and now I question everything. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. We've got an interesting one tonight along the lines of this chaos that's going on in the Middle East right now. Um, and and this, it, it, it's funny how the timing worked on this because um, before Columbus Day, I was looking into Columbus Day research and what I came across was uh, I was looking at the whole Columbus 1492 thing, and I came across the uh, expulsion of Jews in Spain in 1492. And I was like, well, I, I hadn't heard of this before. So I went back and started digging into that a little bit and found a really uh, good book uh, by Norman Finkelstein that I'll eventually do a show on. Um, but in there, they were talking about the Sephardic Jews and the Ashkenazi. And then I started digging a little more on uh, Sephardic Jews because I wasn't aware of like the whole history and how Jews got to Spain, when they got there, the how the, the whole interaction with the Muslims was during their time there. And uh, it's not something we were taught a lot about. So when I was looking into it, it was very interesting that, you know, you have these two classes or two <laughs> distinguishing names of, of uh, groups of Jews. You have the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi, and then there's another one, another group also. But the majority of the, the folks, they say, are these two different groups. And I, I didn't understand that there was this giant split within Judaism um, as to how people looked at each other. It's, it's, you know, because you always hear about it with the Muslim world and the, the Sunni and the Shia. And, you know, in the Christian world, you have, you know, pick the astronomical different denominations you have there. Um, 
but I didn't know that about Israel and 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 about the Jewish people. And so I came across this book from 1985 written by Jack Bernstein. It's called uh, The Life of an American Jew in Racist Marxist Israel. And it's really interesting because I don't know how much of it I believe, you know, as being fact, right? Or, and, and I don't know how much of it is not true also um because this gentleman was in israel he did live there he did move there um he felt called there as you know many have when he got there it was a very different story and we'll get into that here in a minute but um guys i just want to push to you real quick the patreon okay and we have a few new patrons this uh month i want to thank karen i want to thank rachel and I want to thank Mr. Dignified. I appreciate it, guys. Um, we do a, a monthly patron call on Zoom for only patrons. It's not published or anything. It's just a couple hours we sit down and talk. Um, and then, you know, you get all the videos for the podcast as well as all the Monday Night Master Debater videos, which is right now the only place you can get them. So if you want to see what we're <clears throat> talking about watching, uh great place to get it um so patreon.com slash the great deception podcast and thank you to all my patrons i really do appreciate you um and we have some great conversations on on the zoom calls it's usually you know handful of people a little bit more sometimes and uh great conversations from day-to-day life to current events to politics to old world to uh, religion, spirituality, you name it. We've probably, we've probably touched on it a little bit and it's really cool. Great group of people. So if you want to join, hop in and, uh, get a lot of books also. That's my other thing. I forgot about that too. I got, I got about 60 books out there. Um, and I'm going to keep adding to that. This will be out there after the show. If you want to check it out yourself. Um, but I like to put stuff out there that, you know, I find interesting and I hope you do, or it's a reference for something that we're doing associated with the show. So you kind of get a little bit of bonus material also. So with that said, housekeeping out of the way, let's get into the show. So I want to go through this book by Mr. Jack Bernstein. Okay. And again, these are, (laughs) this is a book published in 1985 and it's it starts with the contents of this book are expected to bring some strong reactions from the Zionist Jews. I am well aware of the tactics of you, my Zionist brothers, uh, used to quiet anyone who attempts to expose any of your subversive acts. If the person is a Gentile, you cry, you're anti-Semitic, which is nothing more than a smokescreen to hide your actions. But if a Jew is the person doing the exposing, you resort to other tactics. First, you ignore the charges, hoping the information will not be given widespread distribution. If the information starts reaching too many people, you ridicule the information and persons giving the information. If that doesn't work, your next step is character assassination. If the author or speaker hasn't been involved in sufficient scandal, you are adept at fabricating scandal against the person or persons. 
If none of these are effective, you are known to resort to physical attacks. But never do you try to prove the information wrong. So before you start your efforts to quiet me, I offer you this challenge. You Zionists assemble a number of Zionist Jews and witnesses to support your position, and I will assemble a number of anti-Zionist pro-American Jews and witnesses. Then the Zionists and anti-Zionists will start their positions and debates, the material, uh, this book, as well as related material, the debate to be held on public television. Let's explore the information and let the American people decide for themselves if the information is true or false. Now, before we get into it, one of the things I find funny is he says, you know, but if this person is of that ilk and exposing you, you resort to tactics. Well, these tactics right here are very similar to what is used by our controllers, right? First, they ignore the charges, hoping they would go away. Then when it gets to too many people, you ridicule the information. I mean, let's take Hunter, Hunter Biden's laptop, right? They just they tried to quiet it. Then when it got to too many people, then you say it's not good information. And then if that doesn't work, then they start going after character assassination of different people. It's the same thing they do with Trump, right? I mean, it, it, these tactics are used by these people at, uh, across the board. And Israel's no different is what I found here. And it's it's really interesting. It gives me, a, this painted a very different picture here from uh, Mr. Jack Bernstein. So let's get back into it. Isn't that a fair challenge, he says. Certainly, you will willingly accept the challenge if uh, what I have written is false. But if you resort to crying lies, all lies, and refuse to debate the material, you will, in effect be telling the American people that what I have written are true facts. Okay, so it says here, uh, this honest and courageous Jew was assassinated some years ago by Mossad. Before his death, he wrote a second book that we recommend to every truth-seeking uh, persons, My Farewell to Israel, Thorn of the Middle East by Jack Bernstein. And I will also post that on, when I post this book, I will also put that out there also on patreon.com. So go check it out. Before Israel became a state in 1948, Jews worldwide were filled with Zionist propaganda that Israel would be a homeland for all Jews, a refuge for persecuted Jews, and a democratic country and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I am an Ashkenazi Jew who spent 25 years of my life, the first 25 years of my life in the United States, the country that has given all Jews freedom uh, and opportunity to prosper. And prosper, we Jews did, to the point one portion of the Jews, uh, the Zionists, have gained a position of political and economic dominance in the U.S. Now, remember, this is 1985 we're talking about here. To fully understand the story I'm about to tell, it is important that you understand what Zionism, is, Zionism really is. Zionist propaganda has led the American people to believe that Zionism and Judaism are one and the same and that they are religious in nature. This is a blatant lie. He says, Judaism is religion, but Zionism is a political movement started mainly by Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews who for centuries have been the main force behind communism and socialism. 
the ultimate goal of the Zionists in a one-world government under the control of the Zionists and the Zionist-oriented Jewish international bankers. Communism and socialism are merely tools to help them accomplish their goal. Okay, so he says, I was a victim of Zionist propaganda. After the 1967 war, we Jews were filled with pride that our homeland had become so powerful and successful. Then, too, we had been filled with the false propaganda that Jews in America were being persecuted. So, between 1967 and 1970, approximately 50,000 Jews fell for this Zionist propaganda and migrated to Israel. I was one of those suckers. After being filled with all the false Zionist propaganda, I felt that I would have a better chance to succeed in the new Jewish state. There was an added enticement, the spirit and challenge of pioneering and of helping my fellow Jews. Dual citizenship. I had no emotional conflict with leaving the U.S. because I was still able to keep my U.S. citizenship and could return to the U.S. at any time. You see, Jews are allowed to be the citizens of both Israel and some countries. U.S. is one of those countries. The U.S. government allows a Jew to be a citizen of both the United States and Israel. German Americans cannot be both uh, citizens of the U- U.S. and Germany. Italian Americans cannot be both citizens of U.S. and Italy. Egyptian Americans cannot be citizens of both U.S. and Egypt. But a Jewish American can be a citizen of both Israel and the U.S. This is a good example of the power of of the Zionist Jews have over the U.S. government. It's an interesting point there. and, And one of the things you hear a lot about our government is how many of the people that serve in our government have dual citizenship with Israel and how many of the uh, unelected positions are appointed to folks with dual citizenship. And it's, it's really interesting to see. And it's been prevalent in, especially the last four administrations. Um, And, you know, it is what it is. So he says, I arrive at the Jewish paradise Before leaving for Israel, a Jewish friend of mine had made arrangements for me to stay a few days with his sister, uh, Fozia Dabul, and her uh, spinster aunt. After arriving at Lod Airport, just outside Tel Aviv, I took a bus home uh, to the home of Miss Dubal and her aunt. When I saw Fozia, it was love at first sight. I started calling her Ziva. In her Hebrew name, Ziva is a Sephardic Jewess from Iraq who, like myself, had fallen for the Zionist propaganda and migrated to Israel. She was employed as a hairdresser. So uh, after visiting with Ziva and her aunt for two days, I spent six months at Kibbutz Ein uh, Hashafet, one of well over 150 such uh, communes that operate in Israel. Since then, many more have been started, especially in the territory taken from the Palestinian Arabs. A kibbutz is a farming and sometimes industrial venture. It is important to explain that Israel's kibbutz system is a Marxist idea brought to Israel by the Ashkenazi Jews who migrated to Israel mainly from Poland and Russia. These Jews are part of that bunch of Jews uh, known as the Bolsheviks. Before 1917, 
They were the force that laid the foundation for the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and the start of communism. Again, I want to point, even emphasize, that this is some of the same bunch of Ashkenazi communist slash socialist Jews who migrated to Israel, gained control of the Zionist movement, and have dominated the government of Israel since its beginning in 1948. He goes, now back to the kibbutz. Prior to 1967, most of the work on the kibbutz was done by the Jews. But since 1967 war, the work has been done by Arabs who are paid a very low wage and by volunteers from overseas. Members of the kibbutz, all Jews, share all things equally. They receive clothing, food, and small allowance. All profits from the venture go to the kibbutz account for use. Each of these kibbutz are affiliated with one of Israel's Marxist parties, ranging from socialist to hardcore communist. The kibbutz I was in was not hardcore communist, yet I was happy to leave after four months, two months earlier than originally planned. During the time I was working in the kibbutz, I carried on courtship with Ziva. She was uh, the one, re- one of the reasons I left the kibbutz after only four months. We were to be married. And it says, our marriage created problems. The marriage ceremony was held in a Sephardic synagogue. The ceremony was simple and beautiful. Ziva and I were happy, but our marriage created serious problems. You see, Ziva is a Sephardic Jewess, and I am an Ashkenazi Jew. For an Ashkenazi to marry a Sephardic is frowned upon in Israel by ruling Ashkenazis. To understand why this is the case, you must realize the difference between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews. The powerful Zionist propaganda machine has led the American people to believe that a Jew is a Jew, one race of people, and that they are, uh, quote-unquote, God's chosen people. I will deal with the whole God's chosen people lie later. First, it is important you understand that the Jews are not one race of people. There are two distinct groups of Jews in the world, and they come from two different areas of the world. The Sephardic Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, and the Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe. The Sephardic is the oldest group, and it is they, if any, who are the Jews described in the Bible because they lived in the area described in the Bible. They are blood relatives to the Arabs. The only difference is the religion. The Ashkenazi Jews, who now uh, compromise 90% of the Jews in the world, had a rather strange beginning. According to historians, many of them Jewish, the Ashkenazi Jews came into existence about 1,200 years ago. It happened this way. At the eastern edge of Europe, there lived a tribe of people known as the Khazars. About the year 740 AD, the Khazar king and his court decided they should adopt a religion for their people. So, representatives of three major religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, were uh, invited to present their religious doctrines. The Khazars chose Judaism. Uh, But it wasn't for religious reasons. If the Khazars had chosen Islam, they would have angered the Christian world. If they had chosen Christianity, they would have angered the strong Islamic world. So they played it safe. They chose Judaism. 
it wasn't for religious reasons the Khazars chose Judaism. It was for political reasons. Now, this I found real interesting because um, this whole concept is a deep one, and it's it's a wild one to get into. So I hope to eventually get into this with uh, Ron from New England a little bit too because I know this is a topic he's done a lot of research on. So And I know he's done a couple shows. Go church, so go check out the Wicked Planet podcast and uh and and see what ron's done on the khazars so back to the story something during the 13th century the khazars were driven from their land and they migrated westward with most of them settling in poland and russia these khazars or khazars were uh are known as ashkenazi jews because the khazar ashkenazi jews were merely cloaked uh, merely chose judaism they are not really jews at least not blood Jews, which I didn't know until I started getting into all this research, right? You just assume. And that's why a lot of people say, well, no, Judaism is a race, is a religion. It's not a race. Well, to some, it's a race, to bloodline. Throughout their history, these Polish and Russian Ashkenazi Jews practiced communism, socialism, and worked to have their ideas implemented in these countries. By the late 1800s, significant numbers of these communist socialist Jews were found in Germany, the Balkans, and eventually all over Europe. Because of their interference in the social government affairs of Russia, they became the target of persecution by the czars. Because of this, uh, migration of the communist socialist-oriented Jews began. Some went to Palestine, some went to Central and South America, and a large number then came to the U.S., and I wasn't aware of this. And and there's another thing that you find out as you go back um, in history. And you, like I was talking about before, what led me to this was the expulsion in 1492 by Ferdinand and Isabella of the Sephardic Jews from Spain. And I hadn't heard about that. I hadn't read about that. And what was interesting was that right around the time that that happened, within a month of announcing that they had were expelling all the Jews who had to leave behind all their belongings, mind you, expelling them from Spain. They also funded Christopher Columbus's voyages. Very interesting. And the second voyage was actually financed by Jews, which I didn't know. So, and we'll get into that in, in the next, uh, when I dig into Norman Finkelstein's book a little bit more, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. There's a lot of history here, a lot of windy stories, a lot of dead ends, so to speak, when you're researching this stuff. So it's not easy. It's not an easy topic, but I think people need to look into it. I think it's an important topic. And I think it is something that, is relevant today more than ever, right? It's something that we really need to understand to understand the whole geopolitical disaster that's taking place right now. Let's get back to Mr. Bernstein's story. He says, political Zionism is born. He said in 1897, the first Zionist Congress was held in uh, Basel, Switzerland. At this Congress, it was decided to work toward the establishment of a Jewish state and search for land on which to build this Jewish state. Great Britain offered 
Zionist land in Africa. The Zionists rejected. They wanted Palestine. At the time, and, and to that note, I have heard about this before. They were offered uh, parts of Ethiopia, I think, actually, um, and some other parts of Africa by Britain, and Britain turned them down. They were like, no, nah, sorry, guys, we're not going to we're not going to buy into this. OK, so at the time, Palestine was inhabited by half a million Palestinian Arabs and a few Palestinian Jews who were blood related and who lived together in peace for centuries. With Palestine as their choice for a homeland, European Ashkenazi Jews began migrating to Palestine. As I explained earlier, most were communist socialist oriented, with some of them being radical Bolshevik communists whose aim is world domination. And I never saw the, the connection there between these two. And that's an interesting connection if it's true. So when you think of Jews, especially as related to Israel, keep in mind that there is a great difference between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, he says. They are not one united people. They are divided socially, politically, and especially racially. Now back to Ziva, a Sephardic Jewish, and I as an Ashkenazi Jew, and our lives in the so-called democratic country of Israel. So this is called Sephardic Jews, second-class citizens. For the first three years of our marriage, it was necessary for us to live with Ziva's aunt. This was because of the critical housing shortage in Israel and because of racism. Housing, housing is allotted as follows. Ashkenazi Jews who have lived in Israel for many years are given first choice. Second in line are Ashkenazi Jews from Europe, especially if they are married or marry an Israel-born Ashkenazi Jew. The next favored are Ashkenazi Jews from the U.S., especially if they marry an Israeli-born Ashkenazi. Sephardic Jews have the next choice of what is uh, whatever housing is left. At the bottom of the list are Muslims, Druze, and Christians. So as you see here, this is not a very accepting society, and there is a very distinct hierarchy of classes and in this system that they have here. So opportunities for employment follow the same pattern. Ashkenazi uh, Jews get the choicest jobs. Sephardic Jews get the next and Muslim, then Druze and Christians till the menial jobs with a great many left unemployed. Even though I was an Ashkenazi Jew from the U.S., I was placed lower on the list of housing because I married a Sephardic Jewess. Now that's wild, right? Because he married is a Sephardic Jewess. Now he has to go lower on the list for housing. Oof. Talk about, you know, racist undertones, man. I mean, that's not even undertones. It's right out there in the public. So being denied housing was my second experience of the intense racism that exists in Israel. From the very beginning of my arrival in Israel, many slurs were yelled at me. We American Jews were merely being tolerated because Israel to survive must depend on gifts of American Jews and the sale of worthless Israeli bonds in America. There is jealousy among the elite 
Israeli Ashkenazi Jews toward American Jews, even if the American Jews are also Ashkenazi. Many times I was told, go home and we want your money, but not you. (laughs) Oh man, that's harsh. However, there was a portion of the American Jews who were welcome and given favored treatment. They were the card-carrying communist Jews. Of the 50,000 American Jews who, like myself, had migrated to Israel between 1967 and 1970, about 20% or 10,000 were Marxist-oriented with a great number of them actual card-carrying communists. They were welcomed by the Israeli authorities and local Ashkenazi and given favored treatment, housing, jobs, and social life. It must be noted, besides coming from the U.S., a great number of communist Jews were migrating to Israel from Chile, Argentina, and South Africa. Of the 50,000 who had migrated to Israel during the time, 80% of us eventually returned to the U.S. The 20% who remained were those who were card-carrying communists or sympathetic to Marxism. Now, that's a heavy allegation right there. Now, what I, I I find interesting is, you know, then what we've been programmed to believe is that, I mean, what he's saying right here is that there were 10,000 Marxists, card-carrying communists in the, Amer- in, in the United States that were allowed to go to Israel. How many more card-carrying communists were in the United States at this time? How many card-carrying communists are in the United States at this time? Right now, today. Think about that. That'll blow your mind too. So he said, next chapter, he has three phases of Israel. From what I have told you so far, you must have the idea that Israel is a Marxist country. That would be correct. But Israel has three faces, communism, fascism, and democracy. The Ashkenazi Jews who migrated to Israel from Russia brought with them the ideology of socialism, communism, and have put into our practice much of that ideology. The Ashkenazi Jews who migrated to Israel from Germany with sympathetic uh, to communism, while sympathetic to communism and support it, tend to favor the practices of Nazi-styled fascism. During World War II in Germany, uh, these elite Zionist Ashkenazi Jews were closely with Hitler's Gestapo in persecuting the lower class German Jews and delivering them to concentration camps. Now, that's a bomb right there. He's been, he said during World War II in Germany, these elite Zionist Ashkenazi Jews were closely with Hitler's Gestapo in persecuting lower class German Jews and delivering them to concentration camps. This is like the George Soros story, right? Crazy. Now, living in Israel, uh, these elite Zionist Jews who were well trained in the Nazi style fascism and favor it have imposed many facets of fascism to Israel to give the impression that Israel is a democracy. Members of the Knesset, the Israel Congress, are elected. An odd type of election. This is where Israel's so-called democracy stops. It doesn't make any difference which party wins the election, the Likud or the Labor Party. The elite Zionist Jews rule the uh, dictatorial manner giving favors 
in the elite clique and brutally suppressing any dissent. In the Zionist communist scheme of world domination, it is Israel's role to continually stir up trouble in the Middle East. Since wars are a big part of this scheme of aggression, it is only natural that from early childhood on, Israeli youth are trained mentally and physically for war. For instance, Israel has an equivalent of Hitler's youth group. It is the Gadna of and all high school and junior high students are required to participate, boys and girls. Like Hitler's youth groups, the youth in Israeli's Gadna are dressed in khaki uniforms. They take training and engage in paramilitary exercise. Even at play, guns and thoughts of war are present. When on a picnic, instead of taking along baseball or soccer equipment, they take submachine guns and assault rifles and practice shooting and playing military games. Once graduated from high school, all young boys are required to serve three years in the Army, two years for girls, or four years in the Navy or Air Force, three years for girls. Ultra-Orthodox religious Jews are exempt from military service. Once out of the service, a number of ex-service people join the Shin Bet, the equivalent of Hitler's Gestapo. Like the Gestapo, they engage in repressing anyone who acts or speaks out against the Marxist-Fascist government of the Zionist-dominated Israel. Again, this guy's just throwing heavy, heavy lines out there. Like in Nazi Germany, all people in Israel are required to carry identity booklets called the Tudat Zehut in Hebrew. One day I changed my jackets and I forgot to take my ID booklet when I went uh, downtown in Tel Aviv. A police officer approached me and asked me for my, um, my identification. I told him I had left it in my other jacket. Because I didn't have my ID booklet with me, I was taken to the police station. At the police station, the desk sergeant informed me that for not having my ID booklet with me, I could be jailed for up to 16 days without even being taken before a judge. All that was necessary for a police lieutenant was to sign a remand order. I asked permission to make a telephone call to my wife and to tell her to bring my ID booklet to the station. The sergeant allowed me two hours to have my uh, Tudat Zahut produced. I called my wife and she brought it, arriving just minutes before the two-hour deadline expired. If she had been late in arriving, I would have been in jail for 16 days for not having my ID booklet with me. This is one indication that Israel is a police state and not a democracy. Wow. That, yeah, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. That you can get 16 days in jail, no judge, just for not having your papers on you. What would be the equivalent of like your driver's license in America? So if you forget your license at home, you could be arrested for 16 days. That's ridiculous. That's fascism. That's some Gestapo-like stuff right there. Concerning the Nazism, fascism, please let me uh, clear a point. Germans are an admirable people. I dare say even great. But in Germany, the general population were victims of the Nazis who through cunning and brutality gained power. In Germany, the average Jews 
were victims of the Zionist elite who worked hand-in-hand with the Nazis. Many of those same Zionist Jews who, in Germany, had worked with the Nazis came to Israel and joined hands with the Zionist communist Jews from Poland and Russia. It is the two faces of communism and Nazi-style fascism that rule Israel. Democracy is merely an illusion. Wow. I mean, talk about just throwing it out there. I mean, that's crazy to think about, you know, and it goes against very counter to the narrative that we've been taught. And you gotta, you gotta think about it. You gotta look into it. It's, it's a very interesting point. So here we go regarding the tie between the elite Ashkenazi Jew and the Nazis. Take a look at the word Ashkenazi again, Ashkenazi. Isn't it interesting? There's a great confusion regarding the relationship of fascism to communism. Fascism is national socialism. Communism is international socialism. I think that's an interesting differentiation right there. So he gets into Israel's economy. Now, you have to remember this is 1985 and not today. Economically, they're in a little bit different situation now. Uh, Quite a bit different Israel economically is bankrupt, which they're not anymore. Of course, this could have been predicted because Israel's economic structure is based on socialism. Whenever a government of a state and its citizens spend more money than the value of the goods produced, economic bankruptcy will result, right? I mean, that's common sense. If it were not for the aid of America, Israel's economy would have collapsed long ago. Very true. Israel is a welfare state in every sense of the word. It is America's most favored welfare recipient. While America's farmers, small businessmen, and laborers are struggling to survive, the U.S. government, dominated by Zionist Jews, are draining the pockets and purses of American taxpayers to support Israel's socialist economy and war machine. Since the Israeli government knows and the favored Zionists know that the Zionist pressure in America will ensure that America will keep sending massive amounts of money. Israel's government and its favored citizens spend like drunken sailors. This practice leads to inflation and eventually to an economic collapse. Comparing Israel to drunken sailors is fair, unfair to sailors. Sailors spend their own money. Israeli, uh, Israel spends money it gets from America. But Israel, uh, because Israel is a welfare state depending mainly on American aid for survival, it is downhill slide. In 1982, Israel's inflation rate was 130%. In 83, it was 200%. Holy shit. In 84, it is expected to exceed 400%. This means that a hamburger that cost $1 in January will have risen to $5 by the end of December. History shows that no nation mired in economic problems as Israel has become has ever avoided economic collapse. Only with massive increases in American financial aid can economic collapse be averted. Even then, the situation would be only temporary. 
regarding the destructive tendencies of socialism. There are circumstances that allow a country to successfully provide social programs to help its people. It is possible uh, in a country that has uh, sufficient financial resource and where citizens are deeply religious and considerate toward their fellow men. None of this exists in Israel, he says. Even in countries where conditions are ideal, there lingers a danger. Since the government of the country provides for the needs of its citizens, most of the citizens have a tendency to lose incentive to work hard. A country with complacent citizenry is easily conquered. That sounds familiar. Tourism is one of Israel's main sources of income. The largest group of visitors are American Jews, but there are also many American Christians who want to visit the holy shrines and see the land of God's chosen people. These Christians come away very impressed and filled with religious fervor. While in Israel, Jews and Gentiles alike are carefully watched so they do not stray and happen to see the sordid side of Israel. The true Israel, he says. So what's interesting about this is, is this is their main um, factor in their economy now is tourism. I think it, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, um, if not more. I mean, it's, it's their bread and butter now. Um, that and weapons manufacturing. They have a massive... Uh, and they make good stuff. I'll give them credit for that. So um, that's that. That's kind of what has gotten them. And not to mention that we donate $3.8 billion a year and another billion dollar rider we have with them every year. So we do help the cause a little bit. Keep Israel afloat. Like in the Soviet Union and other communist countries, visitors to Israel are taken out on a carefully planned guided tours. They are shown the religious sites, the universities, the lush orchards, the technical accomplishments, the arts. And to stir sympathy, they are taken to visit the Holocaust Museum. But kept from the eyes of the tourists are the ghettos. The prisons where political prisoners, mostly Arabs and Sephardic Jews, are subjected to the most inhumane forms of torture. Tourists do not see the widespread crime activities and the corruption and the cooperation between organized crime bosses and government and police officials. The tourists do not learn of the true inner workings of Israel's Marxist fascist government, nor do they see Israel's racism. I met one American tourist who couldn't help telling me about the wonderful religious feeling she had from being in Israel, the Holy Land. I remarked to her, just try giving the, a Bible to a local Jew and you'll see how much religion and how religious freedom there is in Israel. If seen by the police, you will be arrested. Now that's crazy. Just for giving a Jew a Bible, you can be arrested. Regarding the Holocaust Museum, I cannot help but comment. The Holocaust, he says, might not have happened if if the Zionist leadership in Germany had not cooperated with the Nazis, if the Zionists worldwide had not persuaded various countries to refuse to accept Jews from Germany, the Zionists in America persuaded President Roosevelt to shut the door and not allow Jewish refugees into America before the war when there was still a chance for Jews to leave Germany. 
And he says, it must be added that many people, including Jews, question whether the Holocaust happened as portrayed by the Zionist propagandists, at least not to the extent the Zionists claim. You know, I don't have any comment on that one. Religion. The land on which the present state of Israel has been built, formerly Palestine, was once walked upon by Moses, uh, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Since Palestine was the site of many religious events and has many religious sites, it is rightfully referred to as the Holy Land. So one would think that Palestine, now Israel, would tend to have an air of holiness about it. When Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Jews occupied Palestine, there was a religious aura. But since the Zionists took over the area and set up the state of Israel, it is one of the most sinful nations in the world where only 5% of the Jews are religious, he says. It is interesting to note that those who are strongly religious are Arab Muslims and Arab Christians who make up a small minority of Israel. Israeli law uh, laws suppress all religion. For instance, it is against the law to try and convert a Jew to another religion, even if the Jew is an atheist or humanist. A Christian is permitted to preach the gospel in a church building, but for clergy or anyone else or, or anyone to even tell one about the teachings in the Bible outside the church building will bring five years prison sentence. For a Christian to give a Bible or religious article to a Jew will also bring a five-year prison sentence. Even an act of kindness by a Christian towards a Jew, such as giving a gift of food, can be interpreted as trying to convert the Jew to Christianity and can bring a five-year prison sentence. The same law of religious suppression applies to those of the Islamic faith who act in kindness um, and give any gift of any kind to a Jew. A five-year prison sentence can result. The treatment of religious Jews is touchy for the ruling Zionists. Worldwide, Jews and non-Jews view Israel as a land where Jews uh, may practice their religion without persecution. Therefore, Zionists do not dare risk suppressing Judaism for fear of arousing world opinions against them. So, the ruling Zionists merely tolerate the religious practices of a small minority of Jews in Israel. And that's what I didn't r realize, is the, how few are really religious. Um, and, you know, I had been programmed to believe that it was a very, very religious people that were there. And it turns out it's a small sect who are actually practicing. Okay, so we get to God's chosen people. The American people have been led to believe the Jews are God's chosen people. This myth was started by a small group of Jews. A few Jewish leaders took excerpts from the Bible and interpreted them as chosen people. But isn't it odd that it is not the religious Jews who claim to be God's chosen people? It is the atheistic, non-believing Jews who claim that honor. Leading the cry, we are God's chosen people, are the Zionist, Marxist, Ashkenazi Jews who, for political purposes, chose Judaism 
and who do not have a drop of biblical Jewish blood in them. That's a that's a heavy claim, my man. This guy's dropping bombs on us. One Israeli religious Jew said it well. At one time, we Jews were chosen by God to be his messengers. But long ago, we forfeited that right. Whew. And that makes sense. Anyone who has read the Bible with an open mind knows that God gave Jews of that time special favors, but it was in the form of covenants. In these covenants were conditions. The conditions were that God demanded that the Jews obey his word. Time after time, the Jews broke the covenants. They rejected God and turned uh, adoring mammon. It doesn't take a biblical scholar to realize that long ago, even the real Jews lost the right of being God's chosen people. Okay, which is, it's interesting because I was listening and I I highly recommend everyone go listen to the most recent Operation Red Pill uh, episode, uh, One Nation Under Remfam. And Jason and Christopher we're talking about this uh, same notion that, you know, they were removed from here because of disobeying his word. And they haven't done any restitution to earn back that. And in fact, they, many would say, uh, according to, to their show, that they're basically just shoving it back in God's face with the star of David and, and and Christopher and Jason lead us to believe that it's really the star of Solomon. It's not even the star of David. And that that is just a poke at God. And it's, it's a very, so go listen to that episode. And I I've listened to it once. I have to listen to it again to get really back into it. Uh, and deeply into it. Um, But man, what great information they had over there. But that's something, again, I didn't realize until you start digging into this. And the funny thing is, is I took an Africa Middle East course in high school and college. And, you know, one of the sections, obviously, in the in the course is the Jewish uh, Palestinian conflict. And it, it was so interesting to I mean, I took that class now, 25 and 20 years ago, uh, if not more. So in those classes, it was real interesting how they portrayed things because it had a very Western tilt to it. It had a very heavily Israeli uh, lean to it. And, you know, reading some of the stuff that I've read over the years, it's, you know, you start to see a balance of the information that and how things really were. So here's an interesting little part he goes through now. In comparing the degree to which the followers of the three major major religions practice their beliefs, I make this observation. So he says, for Judaism, few Jews, Sephardic or Ashkenazi, are religious. The, this is true in America, in Israel, and worldwide. He says, for Christianity, the Christian's religion has felt the influence of Jewish meddling and infiltration, especially in America, resulting in confusion and bickering between the various Christian denominations. 
This has led to a lukewarm attitude among most Christians towards the religion. There's evidence to prove that Jews or one of their many fronts have started many of the Christian denominations and thus dominate doctrine. Islam. Muslims who follow the teachings of Islam are by far the most fervent of the three major religions in following their religious beliefs. And I would agree with that. I do think that they are the most fervent, the most, you know, religious about their religion. Um, There's a lot of shitty Christians. There's a lot of shitty Muslims too, but there's a lot of shitty Christians. There's a lot of shitty Jews. We can't make these broad generalizations, but in looking at the three from a, you know, a high level view, I think he's pretty accurate here as to the authenticity of it. And then he goes, the Judeo-Christian ethic uh, we hear so much about in America is a big joke. The result of an intense Zionist propaganda campaign. He goes, I'll toss in one last thought about God's chosen people myth. God said, beware of those who call themselves Jews and are not, for they lie. He says, could it be the Ashkenazi Jews who are the people to whom God was referring? And that's something that Jason and, and Christopher touched on in their episode too, on in Op- Operation Red Pill, was that, you know, who are the people of Israel? Who are the original people? And who are the people that are there now? And are they of the same bloodline? And that's a whole different rabbit hole I'm not even getting into, but it's a very interesting topic to look into. So let's get back to Mr. Bernstein's work here. He says, Israel stirs perpetual war. In the Holy Land, it would seem that there would be peace. Instead, war and preparation for war is ever-present. The Israeli military machine is recognized as the fourth most powerful in the world. From the standpoint of the amount of planes, tanks, and other fighting equipment, plus the fact it is of the latest design does make the military machine of Israel very powerful. But in the army, serious weakness has developed. Before exploring the weaknesses of Israel's army, let's briefly review each of the wars in which Israel has been involved and average... uh, of one every eight years since it became a state in 1948. So you had 1948, just after Israel had declared itself a state, Palestinian and other Arabs attacked the Israeli army, which had been formed out of terrorists, out of the terrorist groups, the Ergun and the Stern Gang. The reason for the attack by Palestinians was to try to regain their homes through murder and terror through which murder and terrorism the zionists had confiscated them the palestinians had been a peaceful people and were not trained in the art of warfare while the ashkenazi zionist jews who had migrated from the soviet russia poland and germany had more knowledge of tactical warfare in addition zionists had built up a large amount of arms which they had purchased from the u.s and communist countries and had illegally smuggled into the area the arabs were defeated and in the process israel conquered more palestinian territory 1956 egypt owned the land through which the suez canal flows egypt's president nasser 
declared that the intention of taking over the operation of the canal from England, this would have hurt England's colonial empire. So England, along with France and Israel, conspired to attack Egypt. With Egypt nearly subdued, America's President Eisenhower stepped in and ordered England, France, and Israel to withdraw. At the time, the United States was still militarily strong enough to back Eisenhower's order, so England, France, and Israel did withdraw. This was the only time during U.S.-Israeli relations that the U.S. president put the interests of America ahead of Israel's interests. Now that's wild. And if you look, that has that pattern has continued up until today, which is something that you really have to think about when you think about Israel and the creation of this state. And, you know, how are we tied to it? Is it the 51st state, as many would call it? Who knows? Again, a whole nother show. 1967 war. Tension between the mounting, uh, mounting between Egypt and Israel over territory located between the two countries, the Sinai and the Gaza Strip. To help Israel get an unfair advantage, the Soviet Union resorted to trickery. The Soviet diplomats in Egypt told President Nasser to threaten war, but not attack. Then Soviet diplomats told Israel's leaders to threaten war and go ahead and attack. The act of treachery enabled Israel to attack while Egypt was off guard and destroy Egypt's military capacity in six days. Israel had the technical equipment to intercept radio messages and change these messages, it's called boiling them, and then send them on to their uh, destination. During the war, Israel intercepted messages from Egypt to Jordan and Syria and changed the messages, tricking Jordan and Syria into entering the war. The Arab countries were defeated and Israel took a step forward uh, toward its goal of conquest of occupying the Golan Heights and the West Bank, as well as the Sinai and Gaza. So as you can see already, they were given this chunk of land in 1948. Now they want to expand it and expand it and expand it. And here we go again. Even though Israel's attack on Egypt is called the 1967 war and often referred to as the Six-Day War, it can hardly be called a war. Egypt, the most powerful Arab nation at that time, didn't have a chance to fight. Trickery on the part of the Soviet Union and Israel, as I have explained, rendered the so-called 1967 war nothing more than a treacherous act of terrorism for which the Soviets and Israelis are famous. Now, I find this this uh, relationship between the Soviets and Israel to be very interesting, if true, because if we're the ones that are supporting Israel monetarily, militarily, and our biggest um enemy at the time is russia and they're also helping israel israel again is playing both sides which would that surprise you probably not 
It's been the goal of Israel's leaders to take over all the land between the Nile and the Euphrates. Besides the Sinai and Gaza Strip, which Israel intended to take from Egypt during the war, they desired the West Bank, which was a part of Jordan. Now, before I go on too far, when he says here, it has been the goal of Israel's leaders to take over all the lands between the Nile and the Euphrates. He's not lying. So if you look on, on this um, map right here, you'll see this is where the Nile is over in Egypt. They want all of this. And this is Israel right in here. Okay, this little sliver right here, it's about the size of New Jersey. This is the Sinai Peninsula right in here. This is uh, Jordan. This is Syria. This is Lebanon right up here. This is Iraq. They want to take all of that land over and this huge chunk of Saudi Arabia down here. This is what they envision Israel, the state of Israel being one day. And this this uh map was it's called the map of greater israel if you want to look into it it was promoted by theodore herzl who is the leading zionist of the time so very interesting to see and always makes you wonder what the plans are beyond that any okay and so not only take george uh the West Bank and Jordan, but the Golan Heights, which was a part of Syria. So during the 67 war, Israel resorted to trickery. Israel's attack on the USS Liberty. Now, this is another one that you get a lot of different stories and it's been kind of whitewashed. Not something they teach you about in school, which, I mean, it, it's it's despicable. So let's get into it. During the 1967 war, one of the most daring acts of treachery was committed. It was the attack on an American ship, the USS Liberty, by America's so-called friend, Israel. During Israel's treacherous attack on Egypt, the USS Liberty, an American surveillance ship, was cruising off the coast of Israel, monitoring the pro progress of the attack. And that's why I was wondering, like, uh, why? Did Israel attack this ship? And this is the reason right here. Realizing the USS Liberty was learning and recording Israel's acts of treachery against Egypt, Israeli leaders decided to, quote unquote, get rid of the evidence. Israeli planes and torpedo boats attacked Liberty with the obvious intent of sinking it. If the ship was sunk, thus destroying the evidence, Israel could then blame Egypt for the attack and the Zionist-controlled news media in America would have given the lie as fact with the intent of turning the American people against Egypt. Where have you heard this stuff before? This is their MO, right? But fortunately, bravery on part of the Liberty crew kept the ship afloat. Israel failed in its act of treachery against America, its ally. But during the attack, Israel killed 34 crew members of the Liberty and wounded 171. Israel claimed the attack on the Liberty was a case of mistaken identity, but reports the surviving crew and other evidence proves the attack by Israel was intentional. Facts about the attack on the USS Liberty were conveniently omitted by the Zionist-controlled American news media. All that the Zionists told the American people was that Israel had sunk an American ship, but it was a case of mistaken identity. Right? Mistaken identity. 
That is what these terrorists hide behind. The U.S. government does it when they do the drone strikes. The Israeli government does it here. And many, many governments do it across the world. It's a case of mistaken identity. It's disgusting because all humans deserve, you know, humane way of living. Not to be tr treated, as, oh, sorry, you're an after effect. Mistaken identity. An investigation by the U.S. government was subdued and the matter quickly forgotten. This is a good example of the tremendous influence the Zionists have over the U.S. government and media. You know, and now it's it's gotten even worse. The cover-up of the whole scandalous affair by the U.S. government could not have succeeded if the news media had not done its duty and reported the facts surrounding the attack it is a good example of the power of the Zionist-controlled news media in America to distort or withhold important news from the American people. They would never do that. The American news would never spit propaganda to its people. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is, oh, this is all conspiracy here. <laughs> Amazing. 1973 war. The treachery on the part of Israel and the Soviets that led to the 1967 embittered the Arab people, and immediately they began arming with the intent of retaliating for this Israeli treachery and to try and take back the land that Israel had taken from them. By 1973, they were prepared. Even though several Arab countries were preparing militarily, they were trying to peacefully work out solutions with Israel, but Israel was assured that their Zionist brethren in America would use their power over U.S. government to make sure that the U.S. would support Israel. So Israel's leaders continued to maintain a belligerent attitude. Realizing the hopelessness of further negotiation with Israel's leaders, Egypt, along with Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, attacked Israel, and they were winning. With Israel facing defeat, the powerful Zionists in America pulled the strings of their power over the U.S. government, and the U.S. government officials obeyed their Zionist masters. Massive amounts of U.S. military equipment and arms were airlifted at taxpayers' expense to Israel to bolster the retreating Israeli forces. This U.S. aid enabled Israel to turn the tide and emerge victorious. Yes, Israel was saved. But so much of the U.S. military equipment was airlifted to Israel at the time that the U.S. armed forces were left in short supply and in a weakened position. U.S. government officials are so much under the influence of the Zionists that they had alerted the 82nd Airborne Division stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and U.S. troops stationed in Germany for the purpose of being sent to aid Israel if necessary. Boots on the ground in Israel. Not good. If it comes to that, guys, buckle up because it's going to get hairy. That's World War III. If U.S. puts boots on the ground in Israel, you can pretty damn, be damn sure that Iran's not going to take it. Yeah, not, not sitting down. All right. Uh, it is said, uh, pretty sad that uh, to please the Zionist power in America, the U.S. government officials are willing to sacrifice the life of American boys to save Zionist Marxist Israel. Young men 
already in the U.S. Armed Forces and their parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters uh, should especially be concerned about Israel's uh, Israeli precipitated wars and attempts to involve the U.S. in these wars because if necessary to save Israel in one of these acts of aggression, the U.S. government will bow to their American Zionists and send the American boys into combat. The boys will have no choice but to fight on the side of the Zionist Marxist Israel. If the American boys die in a future Mideast war, you will know that those responsible will be the Zionist Jews of America and the weak-spined politicians in Washington, D.C. who bow to their Zionist lords. That's powerful, man. But if you think about it, Again, remember the time that this this was written in 1985. He's describing Iraq right there. One and two. Who got us into those? We need oil, right? Money. I'm sure somebody over there had a little to do with it. Now, this is something I found really interesting. The New York-Moscow-Tel Aviv Triangle. And he says, at this point, you may be confused. Israel and the Soviets are ideological allies. Both followed the idea of Karl Marx, so both are communist socialists. Yet the Soviets supplied military equipment to the Arabs, Israel's enemies. And at the same time, the Soviet Union's army, uh, enemy, the United States, was arming Israel. See, and this is what I'm talking about with that weird relationship between the three countries. Because you have the U.S. and, and Soviets who are in a Cold War. Remember that, right? Cold War at this time. And then... and. Israel's playing both sides of us. Very interesting. To understand the treachery which Zionist uh, Bolshevik Jews are capable and understand the treachery which took place during the 1973 war, I must explain the New York-Moscow-Tel Aviv Triangle. To do so, it's necessary to go back a few years in history. A heavy migration of Jews from Russia to America started in 1831. Most of these were communist Jews. So many of these communist Bolshevik Jews settled in New York City that New York has been referred to as Moscow on the Hudson in reference to the Hudson River. Moscow has pointed out, and with good reason, that the decisions regarding communist policies come not from Moscow, but from New York City. And if you remember the Bolshevik Revolution, a lot of the funding came from banks out of New York City. Whether this is a fact or it is immaterial, what is important is the fact that there is a close tie between the Zionist Bolshevik Jews in New York City and the Zionist Bolshevik Jews in Moscow and extending to include the Zionist Bolshevik Jews who dominate Israel's government. The Zionist power over the U.S. government in Washington, D.C. stems from the Zionist Bolsheviks centered in New York City. It is from New York that orders go out uh, the vast Zionist network all over the U.S., a network that influences the economic and political affairs of not only our federal government, but nearly all, if not all, state governments, and to a great extent, the governments of the larger and even medium-sized cities. This power of the Zionist Bolshevik Jews over ne- over the U.S., makes the New York leg of the Moscow, New York-Moscow-Tel Aviv Triangle a tremendous influence over communist policies. 
In viewing the 1793 war, most people, and it seems most Arabs, are of the impression that since the Soviet era, uh, Soviet Russia sold equipment to Egypt and Arab countries, the Soviets were in support of the Arabs. This is false. To understand that this is the result of more deceit on the part of Israel and the Soviet Union, you must be aware of the Golda Meir, Stalin, Kagnovich, um pact. Golda Meir had been born in Russia, grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and in 1921 migrated to Israel. In 1949, Golda Meir became Israel's first ambassador to the Soviet Union. Representing Israel, Ambassador Golda Meir, a Bolshevik Jewess, met with two representatives of the Soviet Union, Kaganovich, a Bolshevik Jew, and Stalin, who had married a Bolshevik Jewess. They made a secret agreement, a pact. So here's the pact, according to um, Mr. Bernstein. Israel's part of the pact was Israel would not allow any Western country, especially the U.S., to build military bases on Israeli territory. Interesting. One of the few places U.S. doesn't have military bases in the world. Israel would allow an official Communist Party to function freely in Israel. Israel would not make any agreement to involve to solve the Palestinian problem. Israel would influence world Jewry, especially in the U.S., to have Western powers adopt a policy of favoring Israel over the Arabs. Israel was to continue its Marxist economic policies and prevent any free enterprise tendencies. Now, what's interesting here is that whole number four here, Israel would influence uh, world Jewry, especially in the U.S., to have Western powers adopt a policy of favoring Israel over the Arabs. Now, I don't know how many of you remember, but one of the things that the Palestinians did to protest Israel was they started that whole boycott of Israel. And Abby Martin, I know, was involved in it and got some heat for it. But what it was, was, you know, that they didn't have, they don't have many ways to fight back. You know, they're, they're kind of prisoners in an open air concentration camp and they are prisoners, right? And so in order for them to be able to, uh, to have any power, they have to think of other ways to attack, right? And that's why they use terrorism. They don't have a standing army. They're not allowed to have a standing army. Um, so one of the ways they tried to get at Israel economically was this boycott. Well, what happened was over here, a lot of red states put in laws that made it illegal to boycott Israel and made it so that they would boycott you if you boycott Israel. So if you wanted to have a contract with the state of New York, if you were part of the boycott of Israel, nope, not happening. And they would not give you any business. Now, mind you, you can still boycott states in the United States. You can boycott every other country, but you cannot boycott Israel. That Look into that one. That'll blow your mind. So what was the Soviet Union's part of the pact? The Soviets would institute a pro-Arab policy solely as camouflage for its true intention, 
which was to furnish, uh, furnish aid to the Arabs, but never enough to enable the Arabs to destroy Israel. The Soviets would open the gates of the Soviet satellite countries to Jewish immigration to Israel. Should this be insufficient, Soviet Russia would open its own gates to immigration. So what they're saying here is the Soviets are going to act like the Arabs' friend by selling them weapons, but never selling them enough weapons to over to destroy Israel. Then they would send from their satellite states, you know, the Baltics, all that, the Balkans, all those they will they would send those jews to israel and if that wasn't enough they might even consider sending the russian jews to israel that's that's wild so number 3 the soviets would absolutely guarantee the security of israel and he puts a note here both the soviet union and israel would exchange intelligence reports okay so now <laughs> this has got to be hairy for the U.S. because we're supplying Israel with billions of dollars in aid, but they're exchanging intelligence with the Soviets. This is what has to make you understand that this seems like a giant game. Big game. From the terms of this pact, you can see it was and still is the aim of the Soviet Union and Zionist Marxist Israel to prevent peace between the Arab countries and Israel until all Arab countries are forced to adopt socialism under Soviet leadership. Now, that's not the case anymore. Uh, again, this is 1985. So he says, in the conduct of the 1973 war, you can see part of this deceitful agreement being utilized, in particular, the part about the Soviet Union helping the Arabs, but not helping them enough to defeat Israel. And after what they pulled in the 67 war, and he goes, yeah, in, in, in planning the 67 war, is, Israel was aware that the Arab countries bordering were buying equipment from the Soviets and Israeli ally. But because of the Golda Meir, Stalin, Kagnovich pa uh, pact, Israeli leaders knew the Soviets would not help the Arabs enough to defeat Israel, that the aid the Soviets were giving the Arabs was only bait to draw the Arab countries into the Soviet trap. Also, Israeli leaders knew that their American Zionist brethren were making sure the U.S. government was supplying enough arms to stop the Arabs and would send more equipment, even troops, if necessary. When the 1973 war started, Egypt... Jordan, Syria, and Iraq surprised Israel with their improved fighting capability. The Egyptian army faced what would seem an impossible task in its attempt to penetrate Israeli territory. First, there was a water barrier, the Suez Canal across. Then they would face high wall of sand and fine dust, which was erected by Israel. Behind that wall was a third barrier, a line of Israeli fortifications. These fortifications were stronger than the Maginot Line erected by France before World War II to stop the German invasion of France. Yet, by ingenuity, the Egyptian army crossed the Suez Canal, went over the sand and dust barrier, and broke through the heavy fortifications in a matter of a few hours. Israel was in trouble. The Arabs were winning the war. But, as pre-planned if necessary... The U.S. airlifted huge amounts of military equipment and supplies to Israel, and as I mentioned before, the U.S. Airborne Division at Fort Bragg and U.S. troops stationed in Germany were placed on alert and would have been sent to help the Israeli forces if it became necessary to help Israel win the war. 
Fortunately for America, American troops were not needed to help Israel survive. The additional arms were enough. However, the Arab forces were strong enough to stop Israel from taking even more Arab land. In fact, Egypt was able to take back part of the Sinai. Egypt's pre President Sadat realized that the Soviets had no intention of helping the Arabs win the war, that the Soviets in selling some equipment were only trying to trap Egypt in the Soviet net. So Sadat kicked the Soviet military advisors and civilian technicians out of Egypt. Then we move on to 1982. 1982 invasion of Lebanon. Israel, most uh, in Israel, most Jews have become tired of Israel's involvement in war and aggressive acts and want peace. It is only the communist faction that wants war. Sadly, it is these communists who are in power in Israel. The 1982 attack into Lebanon, <coughs> excuse me, further divided the Jewish population of Israel, even within its more militant Zionist Jews. There is a split. The reason given by Israeli leaders for the attack into Lebanon was to root out the Palestinian Liberation Army, the PLO, and stop their terrorist attacks into Israel. Many Israelis have dared speak out and condemn this uh, reason as false. They have pointed out that in an effort to achieve peace with Israel, the PLO for 11 months refrained from making any attacks on Israel. The reason for Israel's attack on Lebanon were, and still are, according to the latest headlines, it is the intention of Israel's Zionist Marxist leaders to carry on perpetual war. The attack into Lebanon was merely another phase of Israel's war of aggression policy. Water is scarce in the Mideast, especially in Israel. Ever since Israel became a state, it has wanted the waters of the Latani River for use in Israel. And the only way to get it is to go in and take it militarily. Israeli leaders and the general population figured the war would last only a few days, but the Palestinian and other Arabs fought heroically against the Israeli invaders had far superior equipment. As the months passed without victory and as more Israeli soldiers were brought home and buried, dissent within Israel spread. In the Israeli military forces, many members resigned or refused to carry out orders it would have meant killing innocent civilians. The death of 250 Marines serving in Lebanon has been blamed on the Arabs. This, as it had been reported by the Zionist-controlled news media in America. But this has not been proven, he says. In fact, reliable reports coming out of Lebanon indicate the terrorist attack on the American Marine base was planned by Israeli military personnel or the Mossad. Israeli secret service. In that case, who actually carried out the attack is immaterial. Israeli personnel planned and instigated the attack. It is common practice for the Zionist Marxists to plan a covert act and then get someone else to do the dirty work. Now that's a bombshell right there, saying that that Mossad was responsible for blowing up the army base that killed 250 Marines in Lebanon. Oh, that's heavy. By investigating uh, the attack on the Marine base, the Israeli war hawks had hoped the attack would turn the American people against the Arabs and that America, uh, let's see, America could be drawn into the war 
and further help Israel in its aggression against the Arabs. Fortunately, the American people didn't fall for the trap. A good example of how the Zionists will commit an act of terrorism with the thought of someone else being blamed is the Levon Affair. In 1954, a group of Israelis set off a series of bombings of American institutions in Egypt, including the American embassy. They expected that Egypt would be blamed for the bombings and cause uh, a break in U.S.-Egyptian relations. Fortunately, Egyptian authorities caught the Israeli agents in the act of setting one of the bombs and the whole Israeli plot exposed. Most Americans were not aware of the treacherous Levant affair because the Zionist-controlled news media failed to report it, just as they failed to report the facts surrounding the Israeli shelling of the USS Liberty. When will Israel stir up another war? 1985, 1986? It's difficult to predict. But it is certain that Israel will cause another war unless the American people learn the truth about Zionist Marxist Israel and act to stop the politicians in Washington from bowing to the American Zionist and stop using American taxpayers' money to finance Israel's war machine. So he says the weaknesses in Israel's military. There is no doubt that Israel has a powerful military force. The base of Israel's military power is massive amounts of the latest equipment supplied by the U.S. and paid for by the American taxpayers. But serious weaknesses have developed in Israel's military. It is the makeup of the personnel that weaknesses emerge. This is due to two main reasons. <clears throat> One, because Israel has continuously been involved in a war or preparing for war, the cream of Israeli's youth are leaving Israel or they find some excuse to not serve in the armed forces. The Israeli army is so short on manpower, it is openly recruiting homosexuals, of which Israel has an abundant supply. In 1976, an Israeli officer testifying before the Knesset, Israel's Congress, said in effect, if we do not rec recruit homosexuals, we will not have enough manpower to fill the ranks. Also, it is learned that Israel has started to resort to hiring foreign mercenaries or paid fighters. Another weak point is the growing ill feeling between Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews in the Israeli army. This is developed because nearly all the officers are Ashkenazi Jews and most of the lower ranks who do most of the fighting are the Sephardic Jews. Due to the shabby treatment of Sephardic Jews by the Ashkenazi in the army, a mutiny by Sephardic Jews is a strong possibility. Well, we're 20, 30, or 35 years out, and that hasn't happened. So I guess they work things out between the two groups. Now, a warning to Mr., Mrs., and Miss America. The Marxist Zionists who rule Israel and the Marxist Zionists in America have been trying to trick the U.S. into a Mideast war, on the side of Israel, of course. They almost succeeded when the U.S. Marines were sent to Lebanon in 82. The blood of 250 Marines who died in Lebanon is dripping from the hands of the Israeli and American Zionists. If more Americans are not made aware of the truth, about Zionist and Marxist Israel, you can be sure that sooner or later, these atheists who claim to be God's chosen people will trick the U.S. into a Mideast war against the Arabs, who in the past have always been America's best friends. Then, 
most American boys will die because of these clever murderous Zionists who incidentally have been responsible for pushing America into World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. While the Zionist international bankers and other Zionist Jews were busy counting their profits from those wars, American mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters were mourning the loss of their sons and brothers. Will you someday be mourning the loss of your son or brother because of the Zionist treachery? Crime in Israel. Since Israel, formerly Palestine, is the land where Jesus and Muhammad once walked, it would seem the inhabitants of this land would have a respect for the Holy Land and the religious sites that exist. Nearly all Arab Muslims and Arab Christians do have respect, even reverence, toward the holiness of the land, but only a small minority of the Jews have the same respect. 95% of the Jewish population are atheist or secular humanists and are not held back by the Ten Commandments or other restraints on sinful human behavior. I found that point really, really wild. Like, really? 95% of them are atheists or secular humanists? I don't know. When the Zionist Bolshevik Jews who control or one control of the Holy Land, every form of sin began seeping into the land. Within a few short decades, this Holy Land became a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. Drug trade, drug abuse, illegal weapon sales, prostitution, gambling, labor, racketeering, murder, extortion, blackmail, insurance fraud, loan sharking, and corruption of government officials and police. Israel has a highly organized crime syndicate headquartered in Batyan near Tel Aviv. Many members of the crime syndicate are ex-convicts and ex-commandos from the Israeli army, and they are highly skilled in the use of weapons and explosives. The crime syndicate in Israel operates openly because of corruption in the government and police circles. Some of the police and government officials are actively associated with the crime operation. The average American doesn't hear of this. The real side of Israel, because the Zionist-controlled press, radio, and TV in America keep silent about it. But in Israel, some newspaper uh, report the facts. For instance, right in the middle of page one of the Hebrew language newspaper a couple years ago was an article that said, in effect, what the Italian mafia couldn't accomplish in 40 years, the Israeli mafia accomplished in five years. It has developed the largest illegal drug exporting ring in the Mideast, selling drugs mainly to Germany and the U.S. They have even set up a distribution network within Germany and the U.S. Excerpts for a few religious Jews, except for a few religious Jews who have emotional religious ties to the holy sites in Israel, the lower class Jews who can't afford to leave, and all other decent Jews um have left or are planning to leave one big reason is the sin permeating virtually every phase of israeli society is too much for decent jews to endure israel's arms industry since terrorism violence and war are a way of life in israel it's only natural that manufacturing military equipment and arms have become israel's main industry and export During the first few years of his existence, Israel acquired military needs from the U.S. and communist countries. But gradually, with U.S. assistance, Israel developed its own arms industry. 
Zionist domination of the U.S. government has led to an Israeli first policy. This is Israel first policy has been severely hurt or has severely hurt the U.S. economy. Instead of manufacturing certain military materials in the U.S. and thus provide jobs for American workers, factories are set up in Israel with U.S. financing and technical assistance to manufacture these products. The U.S. has also helped Israel set up factories to produce electronic equipment, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, home appliances, etc., all products that could have been produced in the U.S. While Israel profits from the help Israel ventures, American workers are left standing in the unemployment lines. Manufacturing of certain war materials has become so great that it has become Israel's main export. This war-creating country, which has portrayed only as the only barrier to communism in the Mideast, sells uh, its war products to anyone who has money, including repressive dictatorships, fascist, or communist. Israel not only sells weapons made in Israel, but also sells weapons supplied to Israel by the U.S. <clears throat> it has been discovered that some of the weapons used by Soviet forces in Afghanistan, okay, against the Taliban, the Mujahideen, were made in America and originally shipped to Israel. So those are the, the you know, the U.S. was arming the opposition in Afghanistan against the Soviets. So they were using American-made weapons on both sides. Fair fight, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Also, it has been learned that some of the weapons used by Cuban forces in Angola were made in America and originally shipped to Israel. It is ironic that the United States is in a life and death struggle against the spread of communism, yet our Zionist-dominated U.S. government allows military equipment to be shipped to communist forces via Israel. Israel's racist policies. Now, this is something I didn't know about, and I this is... This is some crazy stuff, heavy stuff right here. You will recall that I mentioned my troubles in Israel began when I, an Ashkenazi Jew, married a Sephardic Jewess. Anti-Sephardic treatment by Ashkenazi Jew is even official government policy. This racism runs deep in Israel and sharply divides the Jewish population. One day I entered a cafe in Tel Aviv. The place was crowded and I sat down at an own, uh, in the only seat available. Also sitting at the table were five Sephardic Jews from Morocco. They learned that I was studying the Hebrew language. So they were helping me with my studies when a blue-eyed Nazi-type Israeli police officer walked into the cafe. <clears throat> he ordered me to get away from those kushim. Kushim in Hebrew refer- means niggers. Whoa. I replied, after I finished eating, the officer drew his service revolver and said, you move now. You had better listen to him, the cafe owner advised, so I got up. Standing close to me, the officer pointed the gun right in my face and ordered, throw your coffee and pastry on the floor. With a gun pointed at me, I didn't argue, I threw my coffee and pastry on the floor. Then he said, get out of here and don't come back. Later, I learned that I was lucky. He could have arrested me if he had wished, and he could have even shot me under the vague Israeli laws because he sat with Sephardic Jews. If 
if okay in the u.s if anyone complains of police brutality or misconduct there's an investigation but not in israel the person registering the plate the complaint can't expect police reprisal in the form of a beating besides being denied decent housing and decent employment because i was married to sephardic jewess i was the target of racial slurs several times i was even attacked by ashkenazi jews because i had married a sephardic jewess other American Ashkenazi who had gone to Israel and married Sephardic Jewesses received the same treatment as I because Sephardic Jewesses are the victims of the racist practices against them. I had often heard in Israel, a Sephardic Jew tell a European Ashkenazi Jew, Hitler didn't kill enough of you bastards. Holy shit. Wow. Please read the next paragraph carefully. I was born in the United States, attended public schools, worked in various parts of the U.S., and served two years in the U.S. Army. Not even once was I persecuted or had racist remarks made to me because I was a Jew. It is ironic that once in Israel, this so-called paradise for all Jews, I, a Jew, suffered because of racism. The Zionist-controlled news media in America has kept from the American people, the news that is Israel is intensely racist. Most Ashkenazi Jews in America are not aware of the racism in Israel. Even those Jews who have visited Israel are not aware because they are carefully kept from witnessing racist incidents. However, Sephardic Jews in America have spread the truth about the practice of racism against Sephardic Jews in Israel. Knowing of this, the Sephardic have not been among those Jews who migrated to Israel from America. So they're not going. They're going to stay in America. From what I have written so far, <clears throat> you should now realize that the Jews, a few Jews practice Judaism. Most Jews are atheists or they follow humanism, which is anti-God religion. So the portrayal that Jews are religious people who look to Israel as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy is a myth, he says. Also, the portrayal that Jews are one race of people is a myth. The Sephardic Jew, Ashkenazi Jew division is adequate proof. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Racism as practiced in Israel is one reason that Israel will sooner or later destroy itself. And in the words of Dodgeball, that's a bold statement, Cotton. You know, will it destroy itself because of that? I, I don't know. That's, a, that's an interesting take. Communism in Israel. <clears throat> The Zionist-controlled news media in the U.S. has led the American people to believe that Israel is the only barrier holding back communism in the Mideast. This would be humorous if it did not have such serious implications for the United States. From what I have said so far, you should now realize that Israel is basically a Marxist country mixed with some Nazi-type fascism. A large book could be written about it, but for now, I only wish to add. One. Israel is the only country in the Mideast that allows communist parties to operate. There are three. Ironically, it is the Arab countries which forbid communist parties to operate. Some of the Arab countries buy military equipment from communist countries because they can't get enough from the U.S. to offset the huge amounts the U.S. provides to Israel. But that's as far as any Arab-Soviet ties go. 
Two, the Soviet Union allows a good number of Jews to leave if they promise to go to Israel, and Israel welcomes these communist-oriented Jews. It must be noted that once out of the Soviet Union, many, if not most, Soviet Jews come to the U.S. instead of going to Israel. It must also be noted that hundreds of thousands of Jews have left Israel since its founding. Some sources put the number at one million. Some of these Jews have requested to go back to the Soviet Union rather than live in Israel. Life for these Jews is better in Soviet Russia. That's interesting. Three, the latest scientific developments in the U.S. provide Israel are channeled on to the Soviet Union. The main center through this scientific information passes is Israel's Weizmann Institute in the town of Rehovot, about 40 kilometers south of Tel Aviv. About one-third of the Knesset belong to one of Israel's communist, socialist, or Marxist-oriented parties. This should put to rest the lie about Israel being the only barrier to communists in the Mideast. In fact, he says, it is the Arab countries that form the barrier that stop the spread of communism in the Mideast. Israel is one leg of the New York, Moscow, Tel Aviv triangle, which is behind the communist movement. So now he says he gets into terrorism and violence. What do we have here? We got uh, terrorism. Okay. At first, Zionist Congress was held in 1897 in Basel. One of the goals was to create a Jewish state in the land of Palestine. At that time, only a few Jews were living in Palestine, and they were nearly all Sephardic and had been blood-related to Arabs. These Palestinian Sephardic Jews and the Palestinian Arabs were living in peace as they had for centuries. After the Zionist Congress in 1897, European Ashkenazi Jews began migrating to Palestine and buying land wherever they could. Yet, by 1920, Jews owned only 2% of Palestine. By 1948, when Israel declared itself a state, these invading Jews had increased their land ownership, but it was still less than 6%. To accommodate the increasing European Jewish migration, the Jews needed more land, but the Palestinian Arabs refused to sell. So, to get more land from the Palestinians, these communist-oriented European Ashkenazi Jews resorted to one thing that they um, are very adept, terrorism. The first major act of terrorism against Palestinians was at the Palestinian village in Duryasin. During the night of April 9th, 1948, two Zionist terrorist gangs, the Urgun and the Stern Gang, attacked and massacred over 250 men, women, and children. That's disgusting. Menachem Begin, leader of the attack on Deryasa and later Prime Minister of Israel, has this to say. Okay, so this guy who was led the attack on these civilians, this massacre would later become prime minister of israel the massacre was not only justified he says but there would not have been a state of israel without the victory at deryasin the victory at deryasin caused the palestinian to flee their homes in fear zionist terrorists drove trucks with loudspeakers to the street and over roads of palestine warning palestinians that what happened to deryasin would happen to them if they didn't leave these zionist terrorists weren't bluffing For example, 
They killed 60 Palestinians in Balad es-Sheikh. They blew up 20 homes in Sasa, killing 60 women and children. They killed a number of women who were working in the St. Simon uh, Monastery in Jerusalem. They massacred 250 at Lida. Lida. They killed 200, mostly old people, in a village mosque in Ed Dawayemi. I don't know. Dawayemi. They killed 51 workers as they returned from their uh, fields at Kafir Qasim. Christian inhabitants at the Kaaba Biram were expelled from the village and the village destroyed. The village cemetery was desecrated, including smashing 73 crosses. During the few months when these and other acts of terrorism were taking place, 300,000 Palestinian Christians and Muslims were forced to leave their home or be killed by the terrorist groups which were made up of European communist-oriented Jews. <clears throat> it was the same Marxist-oriented Jews who soon became the ruling elite in the state of Israel. From the beginning and to the present, these terrorists, Marxist-oriented Zionists have ruled Israel. After Israel declared itself a state May 14, 1948, Israeli terrorism continued in an effort to push more Palestinians from their home. Since 1948, 350 Christian churches and Muslim mosques have been destroyed by these Zionist terrorists. 350 mosques and, and churches. That's a lot, guys. That's a lot of destruction. At this point, I wish to give you this warning that to all God-believing people in the United States, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, the destruction of a religion by Zionist Jews is well underway in the U.S., in Israel, it has nearly been accomplished. Zionists eliminate opposition. To accomplish their goals, the Zionists will let no one stand in their way. During World War II, the Zionist leadership cooperated with the, excuse me, with the Nazis by delivering lower-class Jews to the concentration camps. So, it is not surprising that they sank the ship Patria carrying 250 Jewish immigrants who Zionists feared may oppose Zionism. In another incident, 760 Jewish lives were lost when the Zionists sank the ship Struma for the same reasons. Even well-known figures are not immune from Zionist terrorism and violence. In 1948, in an effort to bring about a peaceful settlement of the Israeli-Palestine uh, area, United Nations sent Count Falk Bernadette or Bemadot of Sweden to mediate. Count Bernadotte favored a partition of the area, a, per, a portion of the land for the Jews and a portion for the Palestinians. This angered the Zionists who wanted all the land. In a brazen show of disregard for diplomacy, justice, and common decency, the Zionists eliminated Count Bernadotte. He and his driver were assassinated while riding in downtown streets of Jerusalem. Tens of millions of people have been killed since the Zionist Bolshevik Jews, backed by the Zionist-oriented Jewish international bankers, took over Russia. In the Mideast, these same Zionist uh, Bolshevik Jews are using the same tactic. <clears throat> to route the Arabs from their land, they have killed untold thousands of Arabs and rendered hundreds of thousands homeless. 
question arises, how many Arabs will they kill when the Zionist Bolsheviks gain control over the Mideast and when they gain physical control over America? They already have control of nearly every phase of American life. If the Zionists ever passed, uh, if the Zionists ever succeed in imposing gun control on the American people, there will be nothing to stop them from complete takeover of America. And that's why 2A is very important. That's one of the big uh, cards that we hold to give the government a little bit of hesitancy, to give other countries a little bit of hesitancy of in, in uh, invading us. So let's finish this up here. Disaster ahead, he says. Ephraim Sevilla, a Russian Jew, migrated to Israel in 1971. After five years of frustration in Israel, he left, as have nearly all other decent Jews. In his book, Farewell Israel, Sevilla predicted that Israel would only last another 10 years. He wrote this in 1975. Obviously, that didn't come true. Israel's existence could drag on, but I agree, he says with Sevilla, that Israel is doomed. Israel's Marxist fascist policies, wars of aggression, plus racism has led Israel to the brink of disaster. In anticipation of Israel's collapse, corrupt law, Israeli leaders and uh, other Jews in positions of power have already been charged with embezzling large amounts of American taxpayer money given to Israel and Jewish donations and deposited this money in foreign accounts. It must be kept in mind that because of Israel's policies, the free countries of the world have turned against Israel and against the U.S. for supporting it. This has hurt Israel and especially the U.S. If Israel, as it now exists, simply collapsed and ceased to exist, the world certainly would be better because of it, he says. Unfortunately, the New York-Moscow-Tel Aviv Triangle will not allow Israel to die quietly. As the collapse of Israel draws near, one of two courses of action by the New York-Moscow-Tel Aviv Triangle is likely to be taken. One, Israel could trigger a large-scale Mideast war, a large uh, war which Israel could not win alone. Then, the New York leg of the New York-Moscow-Tel Aviv Triangle would use its influence on the U.S. government to send U.S. forces to aid Israel. It isn't expected that the Moscow leg of the triangle will become militarily involved. Moscow will merely sit back and let the U.S. weaken itself by helping Israel fight the Arabs, kind of like what we're doing to Russia and Ukraine right now. Hmm, funny how this cycle just keeps repeating. At some point during the war, when the U.S. military is deeply involved and the U.S. citizens demoralized, the Zionist-oriented international bankers will make their move. Evidence leads to the conclusion that these bankers who uh, own the Class A stock of the U.S. Federal Reserve, America's Central Bank, in this position of power, these Zionist bankers can and likely will trigger an economic collapse in America, like they did in 1929 when they caused the stock market to crash and started the severe depression of the 1930s. Since the money system currently used in the U.S. is not backed by gold, silver, or anything of value, the paper dollar and its tin coins now in use will be worthless. In the resulting state of confusion and in an effort to obtain food and other necessities, the American people will accept the new state's constitution, which has already been written. 
This will place the American people under <clears throat> the dictates of one world government run by Zionist-oriented international bankers and Zionist Bolshevik Jews. Exactly what direction the war in the Mideast will uh, take, only the New York, Moscow, Tel Aviv triangle and God will know. When this is all over, the main losers will be, okay, here's the losers, the American people, the Arab people, the Sephardic Jews, and that portion of Ashkenazi Jews who are for justice and freedom. The winners will be the Zionist international bankers and the Zionist, Bolshevik, communist, socialist Jews. Wow. That's crazy. The other likely course of action would be a backup. If the American taxpayers say that's enough, the cost of supporting bankrupt Israel is draining increasing amounts of money from the American taxpayers. At some point, the taxpayers are going to say that's enough. When that happens, the Moscow leg will move in and fill the void. To neutralize the United States, the Zionist international bankers will likely create an economic collapse to throw the U.S. into a state of chaos. Where are we now? What military action? The Soviet Bolshevik Jews and the Israeli Zionist Bolshevik Jews will take against the Arab countries only the triangle and God will know. It is likely they will strike the Arab oil fields first. Whatever action is taken, one thing is certain. The losers will be, as we said, the American people, the Arab people, the Sephardic Jews, and any Ashkenazi that support freedom and justice. <clears throat> Based on the developed military, economic, and political actions in both the U.S. and Israel, these two courses of action I have mentioned appear to be the most logical for the triangle to follow. Whether one of the two develops or whether a surprise is in store for us, only the warlords and God knows. This raises the question, what can we in America do to stop the triangle of warlords in New York, Moscow, and Tel Aviv? The stakes, freedom or slavery, in deciding the course of action to be taken to stop the Zionist Bolshevik warlords, two points are the keys and must be restated and emphasized. One, <clears throat> one leg of the Zionist Bolshevik Jews is based in New York City. It is from this base the financial and organizational aid was given to carry out the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. This revolution enabled the establishment of a second leg of the Zionist communist power, Moscow. If it were not for the continued support by the American Zionist Bolshevik Jews and their nationwide network, communism would have collapsed long ago. But the various uh, facets of power held by these Zionists in America have enabled them to trick the American people into supporting communism. Two, communism would have gotten started and most problems faced by Americans would ha not have developed if the news media would have kept the American people informed about the action of the Zionist Bolsheviks. However, these Zionist Bolshevik communist Jews are clever. Before they begin their acts of subversion in America, they gain control of major newspapers and especially the news services 
which supplied national and international news to the smaller daily newspapers. Since they controlled and still control the major news media outlets, including the radio and television, they have been able to distort or omit the truth about their subversive acts. Exposure is the solution, he says. In 1920, Henry Ford wrote, if the American people ever became aware of the truth about this coterie of Jews, it would be the solution. What Henry Ford meant was, if the American people ever learned the truth, they would take whatever action necessary to stop this bunch of Zionist Bolshevik Jews. Many individuals and groups are in the process of trying to inform the American people about the danger they present to America and the free nations, but it is still far too little to be effective. It would be in the interest of nearly every person who is aware to quietly but energetically help to spread the information to others. People who have an interest would include the average American who wishes to preserve his or her freedom, Arab Americans who wish to remove the thorn from the oppression of the Mideast, people from the captive nations of Europe who wish to rid their homelands of Bolshevik scourge, Ethiopian Americans or other Afro-Americans who have seen their homelands taken over by Bolshevik communists. Chinese Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Korean Americans, and other Oriental Americans who have felt the heavy hand of communist oppression. Since each and every one of these nationalities are fighting the same destructive enemy, the Zionist, Bolshevik, communist, socialist Jews, it would be more effective if they all join hands in a cooperative effort. I might be leading the fight against the Zionist Jews should be the pro-America Jews, like myself, who love America and realize the destruction of the New York, Moscow, Tel Aviv has brought to this world. Since the land now occupied by Israel is rightly referred to as the Holy Land, all Christian, Muslims, and anti-Zionist Jews should cooperate in an effort to transform Israel into a demilitarized Holy Land state under the international supervision. Then, from this holy land could be could come the word of god instead of torture war and drugs he finishes with i want to emphasize a key point of this book it is a waste of time to talk about fighting communism and the problems it has caused it is a waste of time to talk about the international problems facing america unless the main cause of those problems has been identified The cause, of course, is the Zionist-oriented Jewish international bankers and the Zionist Jews who operate behind a cloak of secrecy. Now, that's, that's some very, very interesting information. And I never knew the ties between Israel and the Soviet Union, so that was news to me and... I don't doubt it. You know, when we when it gets down to it, these people care about one thing and it's money. Right? And if they money and power, and if they can get rid of these Palestinians, they'll do it by any means necessary. Now, let me see if I can find that map. Uh yes, here it is. So 
if we stop sharing here and I'm going to share photos. All right. So if we look here, this is the Theodore Herzl uh, map of greater Israel. So as you'll see, this is Cairo over here. This is the Red Sea right in here. So he wants to take this portion. What is going on here? Yeah, he wants to take this portion, this strip of Egypt right here on the eastern coast of Egypt. Suez, which is Egypt and neutral. Obviously, all of Israel, all of Jordan, a good chunk of Syria, if not all. Uh, I think some of it might be over here in Iraq. Uh, and then, yeah, okay, so there's some Syria right here. Into even Turkey, it looks like a little bit. And then half of Iraq. I mean, and then this large northern chunk of Saudi Arabia, they want to take all of that and turn it into greater Israel. I mean, I found that very interesting. Let's see if I can get to, yeah, see, this is the plan by Theodore Herzl, the one of the founding fathers of Zionism. This is what they want to go to. Look at that track of land they want to acquire. Think of the blood that would need to be spilled to make that happen okay so and again uh this isn't my statement on the jewish people no i wanted to bring this information out because this guy you know uh mr jack bernstein had some heavy heavy words to say and he was there firsthand he felt the racism firsthand so you can't tell me it doesn't exist You know, it's one of those where we, we have to look at this thing and take off the rose-colored glasses and see it for what it is, okay? And it's not condemning all the people there. It's the leadership, the governments, the parasites, the Bolsheviks, the communists, whatever you want to call them. It's the same problem we have over here. It's not me. It's not you. It's not the regular American people. It's the parasites that are in charge, that make the decision, that control the Babylonian money. That's who the enemy is. And they use different tools to divide us, specifically emotional tools. That's why they brought out the whole notion of beheading babies, which turned out to be false. But they pushed it. And they pushed it to get a reaction out of people. Now, did they retract it with the same fervor that they presented it? No. You get a one-line retraction that 99% of the people that heard the original statement never see the retraction. And this is the games they play to get to their means. Now, can this system last forever? I don't know. I don't know. I know right now is a time of great upheaval. It seems like there's a lot of change happening right now. But is it going to be the end game? I don't know. Really. I have no clue. I wouldn't even know where to guess. But, so for next time, what I want to take a look at is this, uh, the other 1492, which is what got me into this whole concept of... Uh, of 
this book here because I didn't even know a lot about the Sephardic people. But I want to look at we want to look at Spain. We're going to look at the Moors and their their reign there in Spain, how they took over Spain, and then how Spain was reconquered by the Christians. And when they reconquered it, not only did they expel the Moors, but they also expelled the Jews in 1492, a very popular year. So what I want to do is uh, take a look at that book. And I mean, that's going to be, it's probably going to be, might be two shows uh, to go over all of it. Because I'd like to do a history lesson, kind of walk us through the timeline of it all, because it's very relevant. And what you see, again, this isn't going to be, I mean, this this focuses on Spain, but what you see is the waterfall effect and how this kind of thing has happened over and over throughout history, right? We see that, you know, the, the Jews were expelled from England in 1290, France, 1394, Frankfurt, 1614, you know, and you see it over and over. Spain was officially 1492 until 1968. So, and there's got to be something here that is causing this. And it's not just anti-Semitism, right? Get Let's get off of that kick that it's just these, oh, just flat out anti-Semitism. We got to stop with that. That's a cop out. It's a cover up. It's nonsense. We got to be able to have discussions on this. So, hey guys, with that said, I would like to take one minute here to, if you can, please go to the GoFundMe in the link below for our good buddy, Matthew Smith. Matthew is battling pancreatic cancer right now. He's been on the show a lot. He's one of my good friends outside of the show. I respect this man and, and have a love for this man. And, uh, you know, I, I think he's just a great human being. And uh, I've learned a lot from him. I've had a lot of great conversations from him. And I know other people have as well. And he's he's a, he's one of the good ones. So if you can, folks, please anything helps he's he's going through treatment he's about to start some mild chemo here in the near future and get on the recovery phase and uh anything we can do to help him and his family during this time as we know our wonderful insurance system only covers a small portion of your medical costs when you go through something like matthew's going through so anything that you can do to help his family i Truly, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I know he is thankful as well. And hey, listen, if you can't donate monetarily, if it's not something that works for you, say a prayer. Send good vibes his way. For all those people out there that say, oh, you know, you know, hugs and prayers. Uh, that's bullshit. Yeah, okay, fine. Don't ask for mine when you need it. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, it's it's a it's a love that you're sending out there in the ether to another person. So, you know, I, I do believe in the power of prayer. And I think it's a powerful thing. And and it, so if you cannot donate in a monetary means, please say a prayer for the man. Send love his way to him and his family. And uh and hopefully 
well, not hopefully, but he will beat this and uh, and be back to his old self in no time. And uh, I'm looking forward. I'm actually going to schedule a call with him here soon. We're going to get a little discussion going, talk some old world, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I always love engaging with Matthew, and uh, and he's he's one of my favorites in this game. So, guys, I, I I ask, like I said, from the bottom of my heart, I don't ask for much from you guys, um, but this is a rare one. So, anything you can do to help and uh, help our good friend. It's greatly appreciated. And with that, I will bid you adieu. Thank you for your time. Everyone, stay strong and question everything. Right after 9-11, about 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. We've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> Like, we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. And by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. This is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran.